This is an ABC podcast. We know Australia's got to start making the switch to renewable energy, but the debate over how and when that's going to happen rages on. Then today, Queensland drops a massive plan. It wants to basically cut off coal power in just over a decade. But how are they going to do it? G'day, it's Dave Marchese with you for the Hack Podcast. In a bit, you'll hear from Queensland's Environment Minister to break down this ambitious target. Also coming up, sleep. Are you doing it all wrong? Maybe, maybe you are. We've got an expert on to find out. First though. Hack. I feel like everyone has secrets, but sometimes in that position of power, they shouldn't. On Triple Jack. You may not realise it, but today was a pretty historic day in Canberra. Because after years and years and years of promises and backtracking and fighting and nothing, plans for a National Anti-Corruption Commission have been presented to the Parliament. So what's that, you ask? I'm sure you're not surprised to hear that the public's trust in our politicians has taken a massive hit over the past few years. And you, the public, want them to be accountable. Fair enough. But even though the states and territories have their own anti-corruption bodies, things like the ICAC in New South Wales, there's nothing like that to look into our federal politicians. You'll remember this was a huge election issue and maybe it's something that swayed your vote. Well, the government's now put forward its plans for what this corruption watchdog might look like. Here's Shalila Madora to take us through it. If there's one thing that unites young people, it's the shared belief that our politicians are just a little bit sus. It's just because they aren't transparent enough. I feel like everyone has secrets, but sometimes in that position of power, they shouldn't. I do think an anti-corruption would be sick because it would just keep them accountable. Like, if it's not hurting anyone, why not? Okay, so voters aren't convinced that politicians are working in our interests. And the pollies themselves are finally getting the message. During the last federal election, the proposal to have a watchdog to keep an eye out for corrupt behaviour, a National Anti-Corruption Commission, was one of the biggest talking points. It was a central issue for a lot of independent MPs, like Helen Haynes. My electorate know how strong I am on this. They know that because they tell me to do this. The coalition, who used to be in government, had their own proposal, but it was criticised for being too soft. Details of what the coalition put forward uh, would be worse than having nothing. Labor promised to bring forward their own commission. The call to the Attorney-General. And after months of speculation of how that would look, today it was introduced into the House of Representatives. Today I bring to the Parliament a bill to establish a powerful, transparent and independent National Anti-Corruption Commission. Attorney-General Mark Dreyfus addressed some of the sticking points that dogged the Coalition's model. First, that the hearings shouldn't happen behind closed doors. The Commission will have power to hold public hearings in exceptional circumstances and where it is in the public interest to do so. Second, that the Commission can investigate things that happened in the past. The Commission will have power to investigate allegations of serious or systemic corruption that occurred before or after its establishment. Third, that anyone can refer a matter for investigation. It will be able to receive anonymous tip-offs It will be able to receive referrals from the heads of agencies, referrals from the public. And while the Commission itself won't be able to charge people with crimes, it'll be able to refer the dodgiest of the dodge to police. The Commission will be empowered to make findings of fact, including findings of corrupt conduct and refer findings that could constitute criminal conduct 
to the Australian Federal Police or the Commonwealth Director of Public Prosecutions. The Commission isn't going to be limited to politicians and public servants either. It'll be able to investigate people connected to politics, like lobbyists and contractors. And Mr Dreyfus addressed one of the biggest concerns of the independents too. The people who shed light on dodgy behaviour could end up paying for it. The legislation also provides strong protections for whistleblowers and exemptions for journalists to protect the identity of their sources. You may remember some of the behaviour in years gone by that simply didn't pass the sniff test. Things like sports walks, where taxpayer funds were given to projects and electorates that the coalition wanted to win. Same deal with money allocated for building car parks near train stations. And Labor Senator Sam Dastiari quitting politics because he took cash from a donor linked to the Chinese Communist Party. So the question is, do former ministers need to watch their backs? Will Labor use this to attack their opponents? Opposition leader Peter Dutton hopes not. Uh, this can't be an anti-coalition thing. Uh, it's it's a, an institution which is important. The rule of law applies equally to everybody and that is something that we live and die by. Let's not forget that anti-corruption commissions in New South Wales, for example, have brought down not one but two premiers. So the fear of reprisals is real. OK, so what happens now? First, the legislation to establish the commission is going to a parliamentary committee for scrutiny. The coalition, minor parties and independents will be able to get a word in. It's a, going to be a standing committee of the whole parliament. The public will be able to have its say on it too. Labor's hoping that the legislation will get voted on by the end of the year so it can start operating by the middle of next year. But it isn't a done deal. It'll need the support of either the coalition or minor parties and independents to pass through the Senate. Peter Dutton seemed open to it, but he wants to see the fine print first. I support uh, the government uh, in the model that they put forth, but I want it to have that balance and I don't want it to become an endless witch hunt. Hack on Triple J. Shalala Maduro with that update and we're getting a few messages through on this one. Someone says it should be by default be a public hearing. Only secret when it's in the public interest to be secret. This is too soft and not transparent. Another person, Tom in Townsville, says public hearings are always in the public interest. Exceptional circumstances are a massive cop-out. And another one says years and years and years of waiting, then there's a Labor government. Very simple. Well, look, not everyone's completely stoked with this anti-corruption commission as it's proposed right now. The crossbench is pushing back on a few of the details and I want to find out a bit more about it. So with us is Independent Senator David Pocock. Senator, welcome back to Hack. Hi, Dave. Thanks for having me. Hey, just quickly, a few months in, you're feeling like a full-blown politician yet? Oh, uh, I hope not. I'm really enjoying it, learning a lot. <laughs> yeah, it's not something you probably want to admit to, right? Um, after more than a decade of talk, we've finally got plans for this National Anti-Corruption Commission in Parliament. A lot of pol- politicians seem to back the plan as it is. Are you mm-hmm. going to support it? I mean, this is something that crossbenchers have been pushing for over a decade and we finally got one. So I, I really uh, congratulate the Attorney-General on putting this in it is a it's a beast of a bill you know the bill and the explanatory mem- memorandum are 600 pages long so we've started to have a bit of a look a lot of it looks really good the sticking point is around public hearings my thinking is that if you're going to have an independent commission they should actually be able to decide for themselves is this in the public interest to have a public hearing i don't think we need to put in there that it's only under exceptional circumstances. 
Well, my, my sense is that Australians have voted for integrity, they've voted for more transparency, and I think public hearings is part of that. Well, the Coalition in particular has been pretty vocal against having public hearings, saying they can ruin reputations and careers if a person isn't found to have done anything wrong in the end. Do you reckon that the government, Labor's just included this exceptional circumstances bit to make the Coalition happy to get their support? I'm not sure. Yeah. I give the government the benefit of the doubt. I think they do want a strong integrity commission. That's certainly what I think the vast majority of Australians want because we've seen it. It hasn't only been trust and politics that's been falling. It's actually also been our, our ranking in you know, Transparency International's Corruption Index. We don't just think there's corruption. There is corruption happening. And this integrity commission should be tasked with actually starting to tackle that. And, and Australians should have confidence that it's going to do the job and then if there are things that we should know about that we do we do hear about them you know public hearings can play a really important part in exposing corruption and actually encouraging new witnesses to come forward with information that may be key to an investigation that's going on if they're all behind closed doors we don't get that opportunity and they're obviously also a big deterrent for people potentially you know thinking about uh, engaging in corrupt corrupt behavior so I guess people are going to want to know, is this a deal breaker for you and the other crossventures? Well, we've got this big committee process. So it's a joint committee between both houses and people will be able to ask questions of experts. People in the community can, can write in and, and submit what they think should happen. And it, it is a good way to actually build consensus. <laughs> Talking to experts in the field the gold standard seems to be actually allowing the independent commission to have the say on whether it's in the public interest and not putting other things like exceptional circumstances. You know, This commission is only looking at serious or systemic corruption. To then add exceptional circumstances onto on the top of that, it, it doesn't make sense to me. Look, so we've got a bit of time to go. Obviously, there's going to be a lot of detail sorted out, a lot of negotiations to and fro. We can expect that. I mean, some research that was out a couple of years ago said 85% of people think at least some federal members of parliament are corrupt. I mean, you're a federal MP now. Do you reckon that this is going to be enough to satisfy the public? Because not looking good for politicians out there. We've got, to, we've got to get it right. This, this is an opportunity to have a federal integrity commission that people can have confidence in. And, and you know, ultimately, this should be a backstop, right? We, we should not have to rely on this, but we've clearly got to the point where our trust in politics has been eroded, that we need to introduce this and, and start to rebuild that trust at a time where we really need it it seems more than ever, you know, there's some, some really big challenges we face from the geopolitical geopolit conflict we see to massive issues here like cost of living <laughs> pressures, climate change. We want to know that politicians are actually acting uh, in the interests of, of all of us and not vested interests. And I think this adding this integrity commission is a way to to start to work towards that all right well there's going to be a lot more talk about this one in the weeks and months ahead i'm sure we'll be speaking to you again independent senator david pocock thanks for taking the time to speak with us on hack thanks dave and we got some messages coming through someone says i really hope this is not just based on doing something illegal if the only reason you keep your job is because what you do is not illegal that's not good enough hack it will be the largest pumped hydro storage in the world on Triple J. Yeah, some huge news out of Queensland today. Do you know much about pumped hydro?
because I don't really, to be honest, but you're about to find out a whole lot more. The Queensland government's announced it's basically switching off coal power by 2035, and it's building the biggest pumped hydro scheme in the world. Coal-fired power stations are going to be turned into clean energy hubs. We'll find out what that means soon. It is a massive announcement and understandably environmental groups and a heap of others are stoked. I want to know what you think about this. Are you a Queenslander? Maybe you work at a power station. What do you reckon? Message in 0439 In a bit, we'll speak to Queensland's Environment Minister. But first, let's get up to speed. Angel Parsons has more from Mackay. Ladies and gentlemen... We all know that we are in an unprecedented time. I understand and you understand that we are facing a climate emergency. The Queensland Premier dropped some pretty big news this afternoon. She called it one of the biggest announcements her government's ever made. A $62 billion clean energy project that includes the world's largest pumped hydro scheme. These are projects of national significance on a scale not seen since the construction of Snowy Hydro. Bigger than Snowy Hydro. One project will be west of Gympie in the state's southeast, and a larger one will be built near Mackay in North Queensland. I prefer to call it the Battery of the North. The King in the North. She says the two projects will support about 4,000 construction jobs every year over a decade. And it'll mean the state's energy supply will be 70% renewable by 2032. But what's a pumped hydro scheme and how does it work? Well, I asked an expert. Basically, it involves two reservoirs close to each other, but one's on top of a hill and the other is on the bottom. A height difference of five or 600 metres between them. And when it's sunny and windy, water is pumped from the lower to the upper reservoir. And when you want the energy back, the water comes back down through the pipe and turbine to give you the energy back. This is Professor Andrew Blakers from the Australian National University. The entire hydroelectric and pumped hydro community around the world will be very interested in this project. But what does all this mean for coal mine workers and current fossil fuel projects? Well, we'll hear more about that and how regional communities are feeling about this soon. But the detail we have at the moment is that coal-fired power stations will become clean energy hubs from 2027. And the government's signing a job security guarantee. The guarantee will support workers with access to reskilling, transfer to new opportunities and advice on future career pathways. Hi, on Triple J. Angel Parsons with that update and hearing from you on the text line, someone says it's good that Queensland are going net zero. However, when are they going to stop exporting coal? Another person says if China can fix a sinkhole the size of an apartment tower in a couple of days, why can't we set up renewable energy sources within a decade? That one was from Reese. I don't know, Reese. Let's get some of the questions answered. With us now is Queensland's Environment Minister, Megan Scanlon. Hey, Minister, thanks so much for joining us on Hack. Thanks for having me. We just heard a rundown of this plan. Sounds very ambitious. Do you reckon Queensland really is going to be able to switch from coal power in just over a decade? Well, look, you know, it is a a huge plan and a plan that we've been doing a lot of work on and that we're really proud of. Obviously, we've put a lot of detail into it, which does talk about the fact that our publicly owned coal-fired power stations will be converted into clean energy hubs. Uh, There's a lot of work going into both uh, the new super grid network, which obviously 
uh, transports uh, energy to our households and businesses and then also uh, also delivering more power generation through renew renewable energy as well as new storage. So that's through battery and pumped hydro and you just heard a little bit about what the Premier said today about it being the battery of the north in particular. So uh, there's a lot of investment going into this space uh, and we're really proud of it. We think that we can do it within the timeframes but obviously it's a lot of work uh, but we're confident that we'll be able to deliver. I want to ask you about those clean energy hubs that you just mentioned because the government says yeah it's turning coal-fired power stations into clean energy hubs. There'll be a lot of people out there who maybe work at those stations. What yeah. does the hub mean? What does that mean? What's it going to do? Yeah, so we also signed today a, um, a, a job security guarantee. We had a whole lot of unions there who also co-signed a charter. So uh, we'll be working with workers on the ground to provide them with uh, new roles in the public energy system. Uh, in terms of those, uh, the transition from coal-fired power stations to clean energy hubs, there's a whole range of different opportunities available. We still do need uh, synchronisers in those areas. So there will still be job opportunities in in that uh, those sort of areas as well. But There'll also be huge opportunities in the pumped hydro, hydro space, um, as well as the you know the huge amount of increase that we're going to see to uh, generation as well, so renewable energy generation across the state. So uh, we're actually going to have more jobs as a result of this plan. Uh, in Queensland, we've got lots of people moving to our state because uh, we've got a, a beautiful lifestyle and amazing assets here. So we understand why so many people are moving here, and so there'll be heaps of jobs in the future. And it's about making sure we can also uh, get people into the skills uh, and training opportunities that they need to take up these opportunities. So as part of the package, we've also got new training facilities that we'll be building to make sure that people, particularly in regional Queensland, can actually access those jobs. Well, I mean, that's what a lot of young people who work in the coal industry are going to be thinking about. They're probably listening to this thinking, am I going to lose my job? Am I going to have the skills to get one of these new jobs? What are you going to, what's your answer to those people, um, you know, who are worried about their work? Like you talk about reskilling, but is that enough time? Is it enough investment to make sure everyone does get a well-paid job? Yeah, well, as I said, we've got this jobs uh, security guarantee that we've been working with unions on. There's $150 million set aside to implement uh, what we're calling the Queensland Energy Workers Charter. So that will be used to fund training and other opportunities, uh, obviously also to help with those uh, new roles in the public energy system. Uh, two of the areas, as I said, will be delivering you uh, training hubs, particularly in regional Queensland. So there's a lot of work that's going to be going on. So uh, if any of those workers are concerned, I encourage them obviously to reach out to the government or to their union and we'll be working with them very closely over the coming years uh, to make sure uh, that we can work with them with this incredible opportunity here in Queensland. Like, we have an amazing opportunity to be the powerhouse of the country and the world. There's so much opportunity here, whether it's in wind, uh, solar, uh, when it comes to hydrogen pumped hydro, there's heaps happening in this state we should be really proud of. Do we know if it's going to be reliable? Like, How's the government going to make sure that power is reliable and affordable as well? Because people are also going to be worried about their lights going out or their bills going up. Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, we obviously have uh, put in a lot of work to this plan to make sure that we can deliver on both affordability and reliability. We already have the strongest energy system in the world uh, and we've built into this plan some very cl clear uh, uh, mechanisms to make sure that the plan is going according to the milestones that we've set out. Uh, so no power station will transition to a clean energy hub until we've built more than enough dispatchable power and we'll do that based on experts' advice 
uh, to make sure that we're doing that when it's safe to do so. Uh, we also have gotten independent expert advice around energy prices and they have said that uh, by delivering this plan there'll be a 15 per cent uh, that, that bills will be 15% cheaper. So they think that around $150 less per household and $1,495 right. less for small businesses by 2032. So yeah. a lot of work and a lot of modelling has gone into all of this. I mean, I'm going to ask uh, just a couple of questions from listeners, Minister. Um, we have yeah. one here and sorry to be blunt, they say, look, this means F all if they continue exporting coal. Is the Queensland government still going to support new coal projects? Look, when it comes to coal, I think it's important that we uh, distinguish the difference between metallurgical coal and thermal coal. And let's make Metallur that clear, thermal coal meaning yeah. coal that, you know, um, you know, we use for power generation, metallurgical coal, coking coal for steel production. So if we're talking about thermal coal, is the Queensland Government going to support new thermal coal projects? So when it comes to thermal coal, obviously this uh, energy plan is showing that our domestic use of that will start to decline because uh, we will be transitioning to renewable energy. That's exactly what this plan uh, is about. Now, obviously there's a whole lot of other global uh, global decisions. We know that there's changes already in the global market when it comes to a whole range of different resource activities. So ultimately that's a decision, uh, decision for those global purchases. But when it comes to the decisions that we're making uh, as a power a generator, we are very clearly saying that the future here in Queensland will be renewable energy. But exporting coal? Yeah, as I said, they are decisions that are ultimately made by other countries. Uh, when it comes to what we produce here in generation, we will make sure that we start to transition uh, over a period of time to renewable energy. We've already started that. We've got over 20% already and we've got some very ambitious targets. I mean, what about new gas projects? People will be wondering about that as well. Yeah, look, and that's uh, you know similar again. A lot of uh, a lot of those products are exported. Uh, uh, in terms of what we're doing, though, we'll be focusing on renewable energy. There will be the need for some gas peakers uh, as we start to transition, and that's actually so we can allow more renewable energy in the network. That's really there as a backup uh, when we need to be able to deal with the amount of um, power usage that's happening in the network at a particular time until we can sort of get that. Uh, that uh, storage in place. Uh, so uh, there's, you know, a lot of detail in this plan that I encourage everyone to take a look at. We've also committed to decarbonisation plans and look, the Commonwealth Government, the new Commonwealth Labor Government has come in with some other uh, proposals in this space as well around the safeguard mechanism. So there's a lot of work happening at the moment and I think it's all going in the right direction. I mean, we do have listeners being like, yeah, but, you know, why would they be agreeing to open new coal mines? This is a, this is a big issue regardless of whether people want to buy the coal. It's, you know, the state government's decision whether they're going to approve new coal mines. Another thing is people are worried about the potential environmental impacts of this hydro project and they're saying, you know, there's been issues overseas. How do we know that there's not going to be issues with rivers and waterways here in Australia as well? Yeah, so one of the sites that we've actually announced today, that um, Pioneer Burdekin pumped hydro site, has the department has done a lot of analysis uh, to try and find the right place that has the very least environmental impact possible. So uh, it's an area that's formerly being used for um, for cattle grazing. There's uh, and um, uh, and cane, I believe. There's um, there's uh, there's significantly less environmental impacts if we were to do it in other locations. So we've been putting in a lot of work to try and minimise 
any environmental impact, noting the significant benefit overall to the environment by reducing emissions as well. And I know this is a difficult area for the environmental movement because, of course, we want to try and do both. And that's uh, what we tried to do is find the best locations uh, for some of these big, big projects. And we'll be working with the conservation sector. I know we've already been closely working with them on the Barumba pumped hydro project. And ultimately, that will have to go through environmental assessment processes. Right. Okay, well, it's, look, definitely a big announcement. We're getting a lot of uh, feedback from listeners. People want to talk about this. We appreciate you coming on to explain it to us. Queensland Environment Minister Megan Scanlon, thanks for your time. Thanks for having me. Hack. Here's how to have the best sleep of your entire life. I don't sleep on the weekends. From what I understand, you want to be side sleeping, but as I've done, you got to make sure you got the right pillow. I, I bought a side sleeper's pillow. On Triple J. I trust Bryce to have the niche pillow. But hey, why not? For something we spend a third of our life doing, maybe you need a niche pillow to help you sleep. It's still pretty mysterious to us all. We don't know exactly why we sleep, even though we know we need it. And we know that it feels good when we do sleep. And we all sleep differently. Some of us have nailed the technique, others really struggle. So when I saw an article today called, Is There a Right Way to Sleep? I thought, we've got to get into this and we've got to ask an expert, a sleep scientist. Dr. Gemma Paik from the University of Newcastle is with us. Hey, Gemma, thanks for coming on Hack. Hey, Dave, thanks for having me. Is there a right way to sleep? Look, the short answer is no, not really, um, <laughs> because as you mentioned, there's a lot of individual variability in, in sleep and sleeping patterns. Um, it changes depending on uh, what age you are, um, what else you've got going on in your life and all those kinds of things. Um you know, and, and we have we all have moments where we might have one or two nights where we have bad sleep or poor sleep. Um, and, you know, as long as that's not translating to, you know, nearly every night a week, um, a couple of nights here and there of poor sleep is not really the end of the world. Is there a lot of research into which positions encourage the best sleep though? Like has any study found, oh, if you sleep on your side, generally people sleep better or it just it depends on the individual? Yeah, look, some of it depends on the individual. Um, we do know that sleeping on your back, people are more inclined to snore or have um, what we call sleep apnea, which is where you might temporarily stop breathing during your sleep, which is actually quite bad. Mm. Um, and that can be worsened if you've been drinking a lot of alcohol or if you're um, obese or male. Um, <laughs> um, and then we also know that for pregnant women, sleeping in certain positions might be better for them and the fetus. Um, some of it comes down to comfort too, though, because um, pregnant women can find it quite uncomfortable to sleep because they just can't find a position. But for most people, uh, in terms of your sleeping position, it's really just what's comfortable for you and, and how you feel that that makes your sleep best. So, um, you know, some people prefer, prefer to sleep on their side, some people prefer to sleep on their stomach, um, and it's really how you feel comfortable the most. And I guess there's other things like temperature and diet. Like, you, I mean, you, you mentioned um, some of those things before, but that can all play a role as well. If people are struggling with sleep, they just battle so hard, and I'm one of those people that really struggles some of the time, what should they be doing? Yeah, so we want to make sure that our bedroom environment is nice and inviting for sleep and comfortable. Um, you want to try to avoid doing 
too many other things in your bed other than um, sleep and intimate moments. Um, so you don't want to be working and doing lots of other things. And as best as you can, you know, having good quality bedding, um, be that a mattress or a pillow, they can make a difference sometimes. I know that sometimes it's not really viable for lots of young people to buy really expensive bedding. Um, so sometimes it's whatever you get. Um, but it certainly makes a difference. Having a dark, quiet uh, sleeping environment with um, without too many lights and distractions. So avoiding having uh, phones and computers and TVs and all that kind of thing in your room um, and just a nice, a nice place where you feel like you want to go and spend time. What about those blue light glasses? Like a doctor once recommended those to me. Do they work? Um, yes, yeah, some brands have been shown to be more effective than others. Um, they certainly, they basically just work to reduce the amount of blue light that your eyes absorb. Um, but they can be somewhat ineffective if you've got a lot of light in your um, evening environment. So be that, you know, sitting in your living room or in your bedroom. Um, so, you know, you want to be mindful of how much overall light exposure we have in the evenings, maybe having a lamp on instead of having bright overhead lights, um, <clears throat> trying to keep it as dark or, or maybe not dark, but as dim or as not as bright as possible will certainly help help you sleep. And then avoiding using your electronic devices too close to bedtime as well. Yeah, a lot of things like you can consider, obviously. And some people, I mean, we're running out of time, Gemma. We only have 30 seconds. But what about things like melatonin, for instance? Can people like build up too much of a tolerance to stuff like that? Yeah, melatonin is a tricky one um, because a lot of the over-the-counter melatonin you get isn't very well regulated and so what you're actually getting may not be what's on the bottle. Um, With melatonin, the timing of when you take melatonin is also really critical and you really shouldn't need a large dose. So two milligrams, maybe five at most is is really what we would kind of recommend. So if people are really having a lot, um, they might want to think about where they're getting it from and perhaps go and see their GP and get something uh, more substantial from their GP. Interesting stuff, Dr. Gemma Paik from the University of Newcastle. We got one text in. They say temperature's a hard one. If you stick your foot out and you cool down too much, the monsters will eat it. Hack on Triple J. So many of you with sleep questions. It's a thing that bothers all of us, right? And lucky we have Dr. Gemma Pacon to break it all down for us. I'm sure it won't be the last time. That is all we've got time for on the Hack Podcast for now. I'll catch you next time.